Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Righty. So we are up to June of 1965. We are. We are moving along. We are zipping through 1965. I feel like I'm pleasantly surprised we're already going to be halfway through it by the end of tonight. Okay. So let's go ahead and start off with Amazing Spider-Man number 25, captured by J. Jonah Jameson. So we have a huge turning point in Marvel Comics, in certainly the history of Amazing Spider-Man. For the first time, we have Steve Dicko getting writing credit. He does not get, so starting next issue, every issue is just going to flat out say, plotted and drawn by Steve Dicko scripted by Stanley. That's going to be the case for the final 13 issues or so of the book. But starting with this issue, it says Swiggin script by Stanley, dazzling drawings by Steve Ditko, loquacious lettering by S. Rosen. But then it says sturdy Stevie Ditko dreamed up the plot of this tantalizing tale, and it's full of unexpected surprises. So turn the page and see if you can guess what's coming next. So I was at first happy that Stan did not explicitly say on the splash page that this was a bad story, which he frequently does whenever he does not take a writing credit. However, then you get to the letters page and he does indeed say it. He does indeed say on the letters page, as he always does, whenever he does not take a writing credit, he always goes out of his way to point out it was a bad story. And he says on the letters page, admit it now. This may not have been the greatest story ever written, but it sure had more subplots than you could shake a daily bugle at. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, so I didn't like the story, but here are some other details I didn't like in the story. (laughs) So Stan being an absolute jerk as always. And I want to point out once again that this timing is why I have gotten the idea that it was Wally Wood that started getting Steve Ditko disenchanted with this situation at Marvel. Yes. Uh, Because you know, Raleigh Wood was here, and my understanding is he very quickly became disenchanted with the so-called Marvel method. I think he actually actively tried to recruit uh, Ditko and Kirby and, you know, these guys to be like, dude, you guys are being exploited here. Come on, let's get out of here. Uh, but uh, so I'm thinking that's where Steve Ditko uh, got this from. And indeed, Raleigh Wood did leave to do his own creator-owned line after this called mm-hmm. Tower Comics. But we've got Ditko plotting here, uh, and in fact, doing a good job. We've got scripting by Stanley, and that is the way it's going to be. So Dr. Strange this month still does not have any writing credit for Ditko, and that will stay the same for another two months. But starting two months from now, then Ditko will get full plotting credit on both of his books, on Spider-Man and Dr. Strange for the rest of his run at Marvel until he leaves a little more than a year from now. So, but here we have the first book in which Ditko gets planning credit. So it's called Capture by J. Jonah Jameson. We see on the splash page that there's a robot chasing Spider-Man and you're like, well, hasn't a robot chased Spider-Man before? And yes, you could tell this is another Ditko robot because once again, <laughs> it could not stand up. This is right. Ditko. Uh, so back in, I think it was issue eight, the tribute to teenagers issue where Spider-Man was being chased around the school by the living computer. Was that what it was called? Something like that. So- something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it didn't look like it could possibly stand on the little knobbly legs it had. And then here we have another robot chasing around Spider-Man. And once again, it doesn't look like it can stand up. I wish that Ditko could draw these things in a way that looked like they could stand up, but he doesn't. So then the issue begins. It's seemingly right after the end of last issue because 
PD is leaving Liz's house where he's been helping her study. He considers busting up some crime, but instead just shines his light on them as uh, to lead the cops to them, then takes some pictures. Well, and what you were saying about this happening just moments later is the reason he, he sees this theft and shines his light is because he had left his spider beam up there earlier to distract Flash Thompson in the previous issue. So, yeah, he's just retrieving that on his way home. So, yeah, I think this is immediately afterwards. So then he goes home, is sewing himself a new spider suit. Then he goes to work, tries to sell the pictures to J.J. Jameson, who doesn't want them. When J.J.J. doesn't want to buy them, Peter is like, but these photos make Spider-Man look bad. Are you sure you don't want them? And then Betty hears this. And Betty says, I've never heard Peter Parker knock Spider-Man before. I don't think that's true. Hasn't she heard Peter do similar things to try to appeal to J.J.J. in the past? I I mean, I I think it was probably, I mean... If if anything, it was probably just a, a stray remark here or there, but not the sort of hard sell about like, come on, you want to make Spider-Man look bad, right? That's what these pictures do. Let's make Spider-Man look bad. You know, I, yeah. think, I think it's just another level of that. Peter, however, even though his girlfriend is saying, hey, you're being rude, stop it. Peter is like, nope, I'm going to double down. So then, so then a scientist stops by. So this issue is very much sort of a combination of issue eight with issue 20. Because as an issue eight, there is a robot running around on little ball feet chasing after Spider-Man. And as an issue 20, J. Jonah Jameson is flat out engaging in villainy, working with the scientists to try to actually capture Spider-Man. So a scientist shows up. He says, I've got this robot, the Spider-Slayer. And does he actually call it the Spider-Slayer in this issue? I don't think he does. I think that's a name they give to it later in one of his later appearances, but I'm not sure. And, try to keep an eye out. And he is a inventor. He's invented this robot. He's saying, hey, hire me. I'll send it after Spider-Man. Jameson is not at all interested. And then Peter, with Betty actually tugging at him, begging him to stop, Peter starts razzing JJJ because Peter thinks to himself, this would be a great chance to get even with Jonah for all the troubles he's caused me in the past. I might even make some more dough selling photos of the Spider-Man fight, quote, fight, unquote, because he doesn't believe this robot will be any uh, will be a challenge at all. But then he quickly realizes that this robot shoots out a bunch of tentacles, grabs him. The robot can tell he's Spider-Man. No one else can tell he's Spider-Man. And they think it's just grabbing Peter because he's holding a spider in a little glass globe. Then they're like, we're going to send this thing after Spider-Man. Peter realizes he's screwed up. And then Betty is really pissed at him and she is yelling at him. I'm glad that they have a chance to have a more substantial fight than just the Ned Leeds, Liz Allen being jealous of each other fights they've been having here. It's an actual difference in philosophy between the two of them. So then Peter is at school. Liz is paying attention to him. Flash is pissed. Flash says, I'm going to beat you up after school. And Peter's like, whatever. But then Peter is in school and sees the Spider Slayer is coming after him. It knows who he is. It's, it can detect him. It's coming after him. He runs away, slips out the side door, try to get away from the Spider Slayer. Flash sees him going and it's like, oh, he's trying to avoid the fight. I'm going to chase after him. So we got double chases are always great. Double chases always been at the heart of literature. We talked about them on my podcast last night. We're talking about them again here where Peter is being chased. He's being chased by Flash Thompson and his goons, but they they don't know it. They're being chased by the Spider Slayer. There's some great panels, really great panel on the first panel on page nine of Peter running down the street, taking off his tie and his jacket while everybody's chasing after him. Also great first panel on page 10 of Peter trying to hop around and put his booty on while he's being chased, really packed with character. I think that Steve Dicko is enjoying drawing panels that he actually is getting plotting credit for. Uh, maybe he didn't know at the time he was going to get plotting credit. But 
So then Spider-Man is facing off against the Spider-Slayer. It is giving him some real trouble. Betty is, at this point, she is totally... There have been times in the past she wasn't very pro-Spider-Man, but now she's totally pro-Spider-Man. She tries to unplug the machine. I should explain that JJJ's face is on the front of the robot because he is back at the bugle, but he's broadcasting his face onto the front of the robot, and he is guiding the whole thing using a TV screen at the bugle. So then Betty tries to unplug the thing to try to shut the whole thing down and gets caught and gets stopped. So then she decides she is going to go to Peter's house to try to confront him about the whole thing. Meanwhile, Flash and Liz are also saying we're going to go to Peter's house to confront him because he ran away from us. They all converge at Peter's house, and we get another wonderful panel of Liz and Betty as they do whenever they meet with frost dripping from their speech bubbles as they speak to each other. But then they go into Petey's house, and guess who is there? It is none other than Mary Jane Watson in the flesh for the first time, but still without a face. <laughs> we do not. There is a a conspicuous, huge carnation or something that is covering her face, and we don't even see her hair because she's wearing a, a scarf over her hair. And it's been implied in the past that Mary Jane Watson was going to be unattractive. And suddenly we don't see her face, but we see Liz and Betty looking at her and they're like, she's a friend of Peter's. She looks like a screen star. He's been hiding her from us. Our shy, bashful, studious Peter. And as you pointed out online, their faces <laughs> are very similar. They are, their faces look like they are photostats of each other. So, uh, yes, not Dicko, not doing a good job coming up with unique girl faces for the two girls, but as people pointed out in the comments, you know, Betty and Veronica have the same face that, uh, generally yes. speaking, one artist at the time in comics was likely to do just one face on all the pretty girls. And, and, and that, I mean, that has remained true through at least, you know, our time in comics. You know, even the, some of the great artists, the, some of the great comics artists, you know, basically had one or two stock hero male faces and female faces. But in this case, it's just that they both have the exact same expression. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's it's just re and the shading is almost exactly the same. It's just like it. Yeah, it really almost could just be a Xerox that was just uh, taken a Betty and then pasted in front here for uh, for Liz. But so then Spider-Man is still finding the spider slayer. It finally grabs him. It's sucking it up him up. It's entangling him. But he realizes, hey, I understand science. I can open up the control panel and rewire this thing and deactivate it. And so then, meanwhile, JJJ thinks we've got him. He and Smythe are on their way there to do it. There's a nice panel of them climbing up a ladder uh, with the cityscape in the background. And they find Spider-Man all entangled in the tentacles. And they're like, we got him. And they take off the mask. And there is nothing inside. It's, once again, sort of a reminiscent of Dr. Seuss, where you have an actual empty costume. And then we cut to Peter looking gleeful. And he has been playing his costume like a marionette, enjoying mocking them with his empty costume. Smythe says, this is most annoying. I was sure my robot was unbeatable. Oh, well, back to the drawing board. And JJJ is furious. And Peter is taking pictures of this that he presumably cannot sell to JJJ, but he's doing it. He just says, I'll just snap a few shots of this to chuckle over in my old age. So then... Meanwhile, we see Peter misses Mary Jane. We see Mary Jane leaving, and we even Flash is sort of going, who's that chick? She leaves. She can't wait for Peter anymore. Peter comes home, and Aunt May has found his... So he had to lose one costume to J.J. Jameson, who, you know, when it was still entangled with Spider Slayer, 
And then, but that's okay, because he just sewed himself a new costume. Well, Aunt May has found the other costume. And he's like, uh, I'm not Spider-Man. And she goes, of course you're not Spider-Man. <laughs> what are you even talking about? I don't want you to wear a silly costume to parties. You've made a silly Spider-Man costume to wear to parties to pretend to be Spider-Man. I don't want you to do it. And he's like, okay. And then that's the end of the issue. Once again, beset by troubles, but it could have been worse. She could have actually figured it out. So that is his issue. And then, of course, on the letters page, we have Stan apologizing for the crappiness of the issue, as, of course, he has always done whenever he has not taken a writing credit. I enjoy this issue quite a bit. You know, well, I'll, I'll now read the full thing Stan says at the end. He says, admit it now. This may not have been the greatest story ever written, but it sure had more subplots than you could shake a daily bugle on. And what did you think of Mary Jane Watson? What you could see of her at any rate. Oh, well, no sense asking you now. As soon as your letters start arriving, we'll have the official verdict. So he's, uh, as Stan says, there are lots of subplots. I like that. I like how this is a very cleverly plotted issue with lots of double chases in it, which I always enjoy. I love the twist and escalation of the Mary Jane Watson storyline. And I think that this is, you know, it's a little derivative of two previous issues, but I think this is just a delightful issue. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I think this is a very good issue. Uh Ditko clearly is having a lot of fun. In particular, you know, as I've said, this time going back through these again, I've become much more impressed with how Ditko likes to play with the environments that his characters are in. And, you know, actually thinking about this in terms of like a three-dimensional movie set and, you know, where is everybody and how are they interacting? And a lot of those chase scenes and things like that that you're talking about, he's just really having them interact with the city in various ways that make a lot of visual sense. And that that's just very satisfying in terms of the visual storytelling. So one other thing here, uh, at one point when... The Spider Slayer has Spider-Man, uh, well, I guess cornered isn't the right word, but has tracked him down and is about to attack him again. And J. Jonah Jameson, as you said, is projecting his face onto this thing, but also his voice can come through it. And at one point, he's taunting Spider-Man and saying, well, hello there. <laughs> H-E-L dash bold L-O comma D-E-R-E. You wouldn't be trying to hide from fun-loving Jonah, would you? Now, okay. I am I am about 75% sure that this is a cultural reference that would have been gotten by anybody then that we generally don't now, but I have heard about. So uh, have you ever seen... So there's a character that I have seen in various cartoons. Well, I saw it in Woody Woodpecker. This, a scientist at one point says, Woodpeckers are the craziest peoples. Right. And uh, and, but then other people have said, no, I remember that in Bugs Bunny, where Bugs Bunny said something in that exact same voice, uh, almost that exact same sentence, but slightly different. Like, what? No, I know it was Woody Woodpecker. And apparently around the time that the Warner Brothers and, you know, Walter Lance cartoons were coming out, there was a series of sort of silly nature documentary shorts narrated by a guy who did this silly voice you know basically think honey badger yeah but back in the days of movie shorts yeah both of these things and i'm thinking this particular speech balloon here all i think are references to this now forgotten series of parody animal documentary shorts okay that is hardcore man that is a deep cut (laughs) all right it is. We'll, we'll see if we have. To, we'll see if we have enough time to leave that one in. But um. <laughs> all right, you have, you have you have a theory. You you have you are working on theories. 
I, I just 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 picture that uh, that it's always sunny in Philadelphia meme with Charlie pointing exactly. at the board while smoking the cigarette. <laughs> exactly. Um, also, there's one letter in the letters page that is not a letter from a fan. The very first letter in here is from Flo Steinberg, who is the one who generally was the one answering the letters. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and she's there apologizing for something, but they do it as though it's a letter from somebody. Yes, that's true. And then okay. she is writing their address is the address of Marvel Comics. Yes. Oh, and then one more thing I was going to point out when he decides I'm not going to rest these crooks, I'm just going to lead a cop to these crooks and then I'm going to take photos myself of the cop arresting the crooks. I'm like, won't these photos be shockingly better than any other photos you've ever tried to sell? <laughs> given that an actual human being is holding the camera instead of the camera just dangling from a web <laughs> and shooting random shots. <laughs> like, this is going to be a little <laughs> suspicious. But, um, anyway. Very good point. Okay. It's like, wow, you, you, you've actually been practicing your <laughs> photography here, Peter. That's, uh, that's amazing. You're no longer okay. the world's crappiest photographer. <laughs> <laughs> but you still have some pretty terrible journalistic ethics. Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. So we are going to get into Daredevil number eight, The Man Without Fear. So once again, we have Wally Wood here. And uh, this is not the greatest issue that Wally Wood has ever done. <laughs> we have the introduction of Stilt Man, who is a silly villain, and we will see this going forward. Later, Frank Miller will take over this book and make it work for the first time, and he makes a lot of elements of Daredevil work. The one element that he's like, I can't make this work, is Stilt Man. So when he does a Stilt Man issue, it is all about how inherently stupid the idea of Stilt Man is, and it is a very funny issue. It's a wonderful issue. Um, but then... I'm like, well, Frank Miller, you're skating on thin ice there because, you know, what else is really stupid? Daredevil. Daredevil is really stupid. <laughs> and you're not, not, not as stupid as Stiltman. Not dude. as stupid as Stiltman. <laughs> so he is like, I'm going to take Daredevil dead serious. I'm not going to I'm not going to take the piss out of Daredevil at all. But I'm totally going to ridicule the idea of Stiltman. So it's interesting where we draw the line and where people, different writers and artists, when they take on a hero choose to draw the line and go like, oh, this old element of the character was just silly, but this is not, and this is absolutely serious. Did you see the Stiltman Easter egg in the uh, first season of the Netflix show? No, I didn't. So when he gets his costume designed by the ex-con, in his workshop, the, the ex-con's workshop, in the background, you can see something that looks like it's Stiltman's uh, hips and leg contraption mm -hmm. uh, sitting in the background. But then they never actually tried to work him into the TV show. That's oh, a shame. Good God, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, written with the inventive genius of Stan Lee, drawn with the artistic brilliance of Wally Wood, lettered with the scratchy penpoint of S. Rosen. So uh, we start out with a little sequence here that will be interspersed with some other stuff for the first few pages of Daredevil rescuing a woman from a runaway car. He then jumps into the car, which has no driver, and is trying to drive it. He eventually ends up driving it into the water in what is actually quite a nice scene. Really spectacular sequence. I love yeah, this, yeah. you know, we, really nice first four pages where you're intercutting the soap man doing a heist with Daredevil and this out-of-control car ending in an explosive conclusion on page four. And it is really spectacular. I'm a big fan of these first four pages. 
Yes. Um, well, I'm, I'm a big fan of some of these first four pages. Uh, yeah, page four, where he's taking the car off the end of the pier into the water, is really a fantastic panel. But anyway, yes, so this is being interspersed with Stiltman making a heist on a helicopter carrying uh, some company's payroll. So he just goes ahead and stands himself up to where he's level with the helicopter and put some kind of like paint or something on the front window so they can't see very much. And then he's like, okay, I've got a hand grenade, so give me the money or else. And of course, the pilot forgets that up is a thing. So uh, it's just like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll just hand over the money. <laughs> it's like, how about you go up another like 10 feet? How long are those legs? The number one problem with Soapman, as Frank Miller is quick to point out when he when he uh, roasts the character, is that Soapman has no knees. And he, he is, he looks like a little pinky could push him over at any time. And uh, it, they never get over that. He looks like he would be extremely wobbly, and we get that right away. We then get a cutaway view of all the gizmos in Daredevil's Billy Club. Now, of course, this is going to be contradicted literally next month in the Fantastic Four when he will be able to use it as a sniper rifle and a mortar launcher and various stuff like that, none of which is shown here in this cutaway view. But uh, he uses some of the gizmos there to listen for where the Stiltman might be. He tracks him down. We meanwhile have this subplot that starts coming up that will be going for the next few issues with uh, Karen we should, having found We should a- explain that he tracks him down but does not get there in time, and he just gets to see a little bit of his backside as the Stiltman gets away and then disappears. So then, yes, he, yes. then he goes back to Karen. Yes, sorry. Karen has tracked down a surgeon named Dr. Van Eyck, who is an eye specialist. So Ike is an eye specialist and saying, yeah, he might be able to cure your blindness. And uh, Matt is resistant to do so. But there's this one panel where Matt's saying to be like actually cradling her face in his hands. And he's saying right into her face to be able to feast my eyes on your features. That face which my fingers tell me is so young, so lovely. And <laughs> it's just like creeper i mean i know this was probably considered like you know a romantic thing back in the day but these days looking at it it's just like yeah no so they get a customer who walks in who you know for once actually is coming to them not because it's just like hey any lawyer will do let me just walk in here but it's mr wilbur day who says he was working for a scientist the scientist stole his ideas uh wilbur day as the assistant and he's describing the stuff and it sounds like the kind of thing that could be used to make a stilt man costume So that's set in motion. We then see another great cutaway view. I I love the cutaway views in this issue of Matt's apartment. He actually rents two full floors of this uh, apartment building, or seemingly two full floors. For some reason, he rents the bottom bottom one uh, under an assumed name for reasons that aren't really clear. (laughs) But he's got a whole gym and a lab and electronics workshop here. So he's doing his gymnastics routine, wearing his sunglasses indoors in private by the way. And then we see also that he's got all kinds of electronic gizmos in his cowl and that his horns are actually antennae to pick up uh, radio frequencies, which uh, is something that doesn't really follow through much. In, in No, I don't feel like it. Yeah. Um, so we see another uh, Stiltman heist. Uh, this one, he's just uh, goes up to a rooftop party for this for the swells 
and uh, has a literal vacuum cleaner he's using to go ahead and pick the dollar bills and wallets and jewelry off of people. Looks entirely silly. Daredevil, uh, you know, grabs onto one of his legs and then Stiltman is able to just slam the leg against a building and knock him off. So this is, I've talked before about how Marvel is in love with the inconsequential confrontation, how like the hero and villain meet and then they end up going their separate ways without anything definitive happening. That happens more times in this issue than in any other issue. They keep, Daredevil keeps making a stab at Stiltman and Stiltman keeps getting away real quick. When next Matt has a meeting with Wilbur Day, it turns out that the scientist that he is accusing of stealing from him, Mr. Caxton, uh, is actually sort of snooping on the meeting. And so it's, you know, obviously very much implied that Caxton is uh, Stiltman. He's very much a jerk. And so you're like, oh, this is clearly Stiltman. Daredevil tries to follow him, but then being a uh, crazy scientist, he has some kind of electrical thing hooked up to his car to zap uh, Daredevil and knock him off. Well, I should say that I was reading this. I'm going like, wait, can't Daredevil tell who's lying and who's telling the truth using his uh, radar abilities? And then sure enough, I got to the second page and he does try to tell, but they're standing right next to each other and they're both talking at the same time. So he's like, I can tell one of them's lying, but I can't tell which one because they're standing too close to each other. So uh, and also, so I think they were getting angry. So both of their heart rates were going up at the right. same time. So it was just hard to, you know, hard to, yeah. So at least they, at least they made a stab at explaining that. Then there's another fight with Stiltman here. We do have some nice panels among this. At one point, Stiltman is stepping over what would that be, the Manhattan Bridge, and yeah. in in a nice looking sequence. I yeah, I got to say, so, on page twelve, when Miller did his Stiltman story. He completely swiped the panel from the bottom of page 12 for the cover of that comic. I were both ah, okay. we're both members of a Facebook group called Comic Swipes, and I went ahead and took screenshots of both to uh, go ahead and put it on Comic Swipes, which I'll be doing tomorrow, probably. Okay. Um, so at this point, Matt uh, talks to his uh, client, uh, Wilbur Day, and says, let's go to the home of Carl Caxton. So they actually go to Snoop on his property and they find the stilts. So it's like, oh, clearly Caxton is the guy. So uh, but he seems confused when Caxton comes out. He's like, what what are those? What's going on? And it finally becomes clear that Wilbur Day has just been pulling the wool over everyone's eyes this whole time. He's the bad guy. He stole the technology. It's just that William Caxton is such a jerk that everyone would believe that he's the villain. Wilbur Day then goes and finds the special weapon that uh, is supposed to shrink things. So, uh, you know, I guess maybe he independently discovered pim particles. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Daredevil, of course, as always, ends up getting the advantage in a fight by having the lights off and uh, he can he can, you know, do what other people can't. But Wilbur Day, meanwhile, outside puts those stilts back on, although he doesn't have the rest of the uniform on. And we see a little bit of what this uh, gun can do. It's shrinking things. Clearly, it's very dangerous. Uh, He just, once again, wearing a suit on the top half of his body and these metal stilts on the bottom is, you know, walking away and looks very silly. Daredevil ends up jumping on top of a train to catch up with him. You know, I always love heroes on tops of trains. I've said this in the past. Yes. And uh, but of course, Stiltman just happens to be walking down a road that parallels the train tracks. Right. Lucky <laughs> reminds me of the old uh, Simpsons episode with uh, what, like night boat or whatever. There's always a canal. Yes. So uh, so anyway, uh, once Daredevil catches up, he swings his billy club up and rips the weapon out of Stiltman's hand. And of course, you know, irony of ironies as it's falling down, uh, it 
flips over and turns on by accident, hitting Stiltman himself, and then he shrinks down to nothingness. So he is supposedly never to be heard from again. Yes. And then at that point, of course, Matt Murdock has some explaining to do to Mr. Caxton, whose home they uh, <laughs> they trespassed at. Oh, yep, there's my timer. But I'm just, I'm on the last page. So, you hey, there you You're go. Well. So they're able to talk him out of then suing them and all this sort of stuff. And then we just get a little bit more of the whole uh, Matt um, not wanting to do the uh, eye operation thing. And Karen storms out saying, sometimes I think you just hide behind your handicap. You don't want to face the world, to face your responsibilities, to... To fall in love, sub. This gets a little much for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so that's it. Uh, yeah, Stiltman is terrible, but there is a lot of stuff in this issue that I like nonetheless. A lot of the art is just fantastic. Some of the visual storytelling is great. But yeah, the the story structure, as you pointed out, is weird with, you know, all of the inconsequential <laughs> confrontations. Also, just, you know, Stiltman. Well, it's very, it's a very complex story in terms of the misdirection of thinking, going to a lot of, going to great uh, lengths to convince us that a different person is Stiltman than it really is. And I kind of appreciate that. I thought that was, you know, a nice little uh, switcheroo that they, that they, you know, set up and reverse some expectations. So I will, so do you, did you read the letters page? I'll go ahead. Uh, That was not included in this one. The letters page begins with so once again we've got uh, we've got Stan interjecting at the beginning of the letters page says want to know how Stiltman turned out to be the villain he is when we first kicked the idea around in the bullpen wistful Wally started sketching a fella wearing eight foot tall stilts then smiling Stan came over to Kibitz and suggested we make his stilts at least 15 feet high by the time we were done Jolly Jack Kirby cinched the whole thing by saying next thing we know you jokers will have him stepping over a skyscraper well that did it if anyone else had fun then we wouldn't have been able to fit Stiltman's drawings on our pages so I guess, I don't know who is supposed to be writing this. Presumably it's someone, maybe this is Flo Steinberg writing this. I don't know. Um, if it's Dan, he's referring to himself in the third person. Hollywood is going to attempt to get writing credit himself on Daredevil soon. And that is going to turn out disastrously. Um, <laughs> going to be the ultimate example of Stan poo-pooing it. But uh, for now, Wally is still just getting penciling credit. But even in the letters page at the back, they're saying that the villain was Wally's idea. But of course, this is not necessarily a villain that anybody would want to take credit for. It, it is a very silly villain. But I, my favorite thing about this issue is the first four pages. And But I got to say, even like the cover of Daredevil Fighting Stiltman, I consider that to be a rather stylish cover, a rather sleek oh, yeah. cover. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Wally Wood is is a fantastic artist. Uh, and yeah, that, that cover is really nicely done. Yeah. Even though it's starring Stiltman. Even though. <laughs> In spite. Okay, let's move on to actually more Daredevil, this time covered by you. Yes, so uh, if you don't love Daredevil, I've got bad news for you. He is also starring in Fantastic Four this month, A Blind Man Shall Lead Them, and we have Dr. Doom is back, and you wouldn't think that you would have your two DDs together. You wouldn't think you would have Dr. Doom and Daredevil together, but you do. And so what and one one minor thing on the cover, uh, there is some weird stuff uh, down at the bottom. Notice that Reed Richards' front foot Something got whited out and not replaced. Yeah, that's like true. it's just yeah. And then the shadows, like underneath the actual human Ben Grimm, just look like just little smears of some sorts. But anyway, some weird stuff, but not not a big deal. Just something that jumped out of me. I was trying to figure out. Wait, who's that dude in the background? Like I'm like, oh, is that White Wingfoot? No, like we don't have White Wingfoot yet. And I'm always like, oh, that's Ben controlling a 
thing robot. Uh, took me yes. a second to get that. So then why? Well, that brings us to our first page. And I got to say, this first page is spectacular. A Bond Man yeah. shall lead them. And we have, when last we saw the Fantastic Four, they had just been nuked and survived because of Sue's force field. But she had been knocked unconscious, but her force field was still going. And so now we have them getting fished out of the ocean by the U.S. military. And the U.S. Navy is on a submarine that has risen out of the water. And it is just a gorgeous, extremely foreshortened perspective here, um, showing a tremendous amount of depth of field as they haul them out of the water. Um, so yes. we again get this bizarre thing where before, you recall, they fought the Frightful Four and then they took an issue off. And then they fought the Frightful Four again. And now we're going to take two issues off. Like they are in the middle of a gruesome grudge match with the Frightful Four. And yet they're like, well, you know, so much for that. <laughs> and they're not going to finish that fight yet. They're eventually going to get to finish it. Eventually the Frightful Four will come back for a third go round and we'll finally have it out. But not yet. In the meantime, they realize that as a result of having been nuked, they've all lost their powers and they're all sort of really down about this. Even Ben is not particularly enjoying being cured. And Reed explains to them all that he has done the science to figure out what's going on. And there is a wonderful photo collage in the background. I have absolutely no idea what this is supposed to be a photo collage of, but it is just, I mean, it look, I mean, the part of it looks like something from a standard science fiction movie, you know, with a big coil of some sort, but then it also looks like maybe a bicycle chain that's been wrapped up. Um, that's been superimposed over it. And yeah, all sorts of weird, wacky, wild stuff back there. Yeah. This is just Kirby being delightful. And uh, so then Reed tries to come up with various ways to artificially recreate their powers. Johnny is wearing a flame suit similar to the one the wizard once wore. Ben, now later, Ben will lose his power at various points in the future and will just wear a thing exoskeleton, which makes sense. Here, instead of doing that, he has a thing remote control robot, which doesn't seem to make as much sense. Um, likewise, Reed is replacing his own powers, and this is another thing, when Reed later loses his powers for like 20 issues at a time, he'll use these servos on his arm, he's doing that, and then Sue is wearing an artificial invisibility costume, which is kind of cool looking. But none of this really works. Cut to Latveria, and... Oh, oh, wait, 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 you forgot about the Electro-Vibra suit. Here, I'll try the Electro-Vibra suit you designed for me. I've been studying the control buttons, and he says, careful, darling. You're not spacing the impulses correctly. Smoother. Do it smoother. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That's what I was bringing up. (laughs) I have never made my wife an electro-viper suit, and I think that my marriage has suffered for it. Um, So then we cut to Latveria, where various people are trying to entertain Dr. Doom, and he is not entertained. Dr. Doom has, of course, an awesome throne with a big DD on the back of it. And a hypnotist in a monocle is like, hey, let me let me do some hypnotism tricks for you. And Dr. Doom's like, no, that's like totally lame. And he's like, oh, no, 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 let me show, let me show you, let me show you. I'll try to hypnotize you. Wait a second. You're already hypnotized. You've been hypnotized into thinking you've defeated the Fantastic Four. I'll unhypnotize you. And Dr. Doom is like, what? What? <laughs> I did not actually defeat the Fantastic Four. What is going on? So then he hops in his unique gyroscopic aircraft, which is a truly bizarre Kirby creation. And he instantly heads to New York to finish the fight with the Fantastic Four. We then cut to New York and Matt Murdock has shown up at the Baxter building or rather a warehouse near the Baxter building to meet with the Fantastic Four because he is their lawyer. Now, we saw before the thing hire Matt Murdock and be very unhappy with his work and fire him. 
So I guess they made it up later because now he is the warrior of the Fantastic Four and has been brought in to help them as they deal with this difficult time. It says, if anything should happen to us, you have our power of attorney. I want to be sure that all my scientific notes are given to the government. And so then they are dealing with this when suddenly they are attacked by Dr. Doom, who has parked his gyroscopic aircraft on top of the Baxter building, is lobbing bombs at them. They are engaged in a big knockdown battle. And that is basically it for the remaining seven pages of this issue. Dr. Doom is lobbing things at them. He tries to attack them with their own fantastic car. He is doing all sorts of things to them. And Daredevil is taking the lead because none of them have any powers. And Daredevil is taking the lead in fighting back. And that is it. That is the rest of this issue. And so then, and then it sort of ends anticlimactically. It doesn't end with some big escalation of what's going on. It just ends with they're all still sort of trying to make their way to the Baxter building to confront Doom. And that is what's going on. But this is an okay issue. It's fun to see them have to deal with not having powers. It's um, good to have Dr. Doom back. It's a little silly to have Daredevil visit. He's not my favorite Marvel character. And especially, I'm not crazy about having him here for a two-parter. Sort of a waste to have their greatest villain attack and Daredevil have take the brunt of the fight. But it's, so I should say this is inked by Frank Ray. Uh, the only issue of Fantastic Four, I think, Frank Ray ever inked. And then we've had Tickstone up until last issue. We've got Frank Ray this issue. We're about to have four issues and an annual of Gutta, and then we're going to get sent up. But I think that Frank Ray does an excellent job on this issue. I really like his thinking. Yeah. Uh, yeah, overall, I really like this issue. Um, you know, I have heard that supposedly Wally Wood insisted on actually coming in and inking all the Daredevil figures himself. Ah. Since that's now his character, or that may have been in the following issue when Coletta is working, <laughs> but but one way or the other, I, I really think that he turns out quite well throughout this. A couple little details now, that I'll talk you're about. You're totally right. If you look on the middle panel of page eleven, Daredevil is clearly being inked by Wood, and Frank Ray is inking the the four members of the Fantastic Four, and they look like they have totally different inkers. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, very clearly. That has a neat sort of visual continuity for Daredevil coming in here, and it doesn't feel jarring to have the two inking styles next to each other. It almost feels like this is what Daredevil looks like, and this is what the Fantastic Four look like. When the hypnotist points out to Doom what has happened, he says at one point, Ah, sire, in your gratitude, I trust you will reward your humble servant most generously. <laughs> and and uh, Doom backhands the guys as gratitude. Such weak words are not for Dr. Doom. Here is your reward. Be grateful I do not put you to death for knowing how I have been tricked. So uh, it never pays to be loyal to Dr. Doom in any way whatsoever. No. Reed being an arrogant jerk again on the bottom of page 12 when he sees the aircraft on top of the Baxter building. He says, a product of the only other human brain capable of creating such a craft, the brain of Dr. Doom. So he's like, oh, yeah, well, clearly, if it's not me, the only other person who could have done it. Was, I mean, I totally could have done that. Yes. But, you know. Oh, yeah. And then so at one point, Dr. Doom, when using the Fantastic Four's weapons against them, he says, uh, turns on the vortex ray, which creates a like tornado that is uh, attacking buildings, basically. It says, thus, the powerful vortex ray, which can generate the force of a dozen hurricanes created by Mr. Fantastic as an aid in weather control, becomes a deadly weapon under the evil guidance of Dr. Doom. 
I, you know, personally, I'm thinking that somebody from the city is should be showing up very quickly to the Baxter building in the next few days. Like, hey, uh, yeah, you have a um, uh, tornado making machine in here. Because, <laughs> you know? exactly. uh, yeah, that's uh, this this area isn't zoned for tor- tornado making. You know, last little thing here is when. Mr. Fantastic and Daredevil are trying to destroy the whirlwind that's doing all this stuff. Reed says, oh, I made the thing, so I know how it works. Gas is the only element that will shatter it. So then they get a couple of gas canisters and throw it there. Gas does not narrow it down very much. <laughs> no. <laughs> and gas is not an element. <laughs> no. Once again, Stanley science. Okay. So, yeah, overall, a good issue. I like it. I, I, you know, it's a perfectly fine issue. Uh, we'll see how the two-parter wraps up next issue. First and foremost, bizarre to abandon the extremely pitched battle with the Frightful Four and move on to another storyline uh, in the middle of that without resolving that storyline. But we'll, they will be back in two issues, and we will wrap it up under the unfortunate pen of Vince Cotta. So we will do that. But, okay, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and move on to Thor. That is you. Yes. We see on the cover that Thor is going to be fighting commies again, which is, you know, not what his uh, highest and best use is. But uh, it's pulled off a little bit more elegantly here than it has been in the past. Regally written by Stan Lee, dazzlingly drawn by Jack Kirby, invincibly inked by Vince Coletta, and lonesomely lettered by Artie Symek. So at the end of last issue, with the trial of the gods, Loki, through trickery, had gotten to the destination first and is now returning to Asgard as the victor. And Thor is trying to catch up with him to go ahead and grab the Norn stones to be able to show how he had cheated. But Loki is able to uh, throw them through a dimensional barrier and get rid of them. So there is no evidence. Odin then, you know, is like, OK, uh, you know, maybe I'm starting to figure out that Loki isn't always on the up and up. So, <laughs> yes, Thor, you may have, uh, what is it, 24 hours to prove what you're trying to say. Then we remember that Balder, last time we saw, was still on Earth fighting with Executioner and uh, Enchantress while dressed in a regular human suit. Uh, Sorry, not a human suit, but a suit that would be worn by humans, not by Asgardians. (laughs) If you were wearing a human suit, this would be a whole different thing. (laughs) But I like like stylish Balder here. Uh, GQ Balder, I like him a lot. Yes, indeed. Uh, so at this point, Thor then shows up and is able to, uh, you know, intervene with Balder to help stop this whole situation. So they, Enchantress and Executioner, at this point, they're like, hey, we, you know, we were just doing this for Loki here. And if Thor is here, then clearly things aren't going right. So we're just going to get out of here. Dump the dump the broad. They leave her behind and she is rescued. Uh, bottom of page five, that particular picture of Thor swinging yes. his hammer. I mean, Kirby is known for his exaggerated poses, but this one kind of goes a little bit sideways. Well, this is this is similar to a cover we had recently where it's like, well, I don't have really room to do the majestic Thor swinging his hammer I want to do because I'm out of room at the bottom of the page. So I will have him limbo his way through it. So he looks like he is in the middle of a limbo contest as he swings his hammer around just so that he can fit in onto the bottom of the page. Yes. Uh, I mean, it does have a lot of energy. But yeah, it there's no way he could be <laughs> on his feet there. Um, so anyway, he is then using uh, some of the amorphous powers of uh, Mjolnir 
to uh, draw him towards the Norn Stones to find where Loki had hidden them. And it turns out he hid them in Vietnam. So he flies into Vietnam. He's getting shelled by the Viet Cong. So then he is hit by a mortar shell. Thor is. So he is knocked unconscious, but still has his hammer. I notice that in the in the panel where he meets the family that has brought him in here, they make sure to show that his hand is still touching his hammer as he's getting up. You know, just be like, oh, we're not cheating here. Yeah. It's, you know, it hasn't been more than 60 seconds. So this family, kindly family has brought them in. They're talking about all of the deprivations that have come from the Viet Cong uh, reigning their communist terror down on the area. And they also, meanwhile, mention that there is a long lost brother who they haven't seen in years. That will come up in a little bit. Yes. <laughs> that so will this be an is, important detail. So this is quite different. Uh-huh. This is quite different from when Captain America visited Vietnam recently. There were no non-Viet Cong Vietnamese in that issue. There was no sense of like the peace-loving people of Vietnam who were being forced against their will into communism by the Viet Cong. All of the Vietnam people in that comic were Viet Cong, which is, of course, more similar to what was actually going on. But uh, this is, you know, this is very much this whole comic feels like a real throwback to the earlier 60s in terms of the anti-communist comics. And specifically in the ending, it feels like a throwback to Hulk number one. But we'll talk about that when we get there. Yes. Um, So uh, and I noticed with the names that that they give these uh, family members, uh, Cho and Kim, I don't know if either of those really sound like Vietnamese names. I don't Um, believe they are. No. Yeah, Kim is definitely a Korean name. So uh, Thor then leaves their house and goes to try to find the Nornstones, but they are through some jungle and his cape is getting hung up on the jungle uh, brush. So he turns back into Don Blake so that he isn't as big and can slip through uh, the woods better. That, I gotta say, this is the most ridiculous part of the issue. There oh, yeah. is no good reason for him to turn into Don Blake. It's pretty silly. Yeah. Like, dude, just take off your cape and abandon it. You do not want to be a lame doctor going through the jungles of Vietnam. And uh, it is it is a pretty ridiculous moment. Really, sort of the whole issue falls apart here as far as I'm concerned. Yes. So meanwhile, the Norn Queen comes back to Loki to reclaim the Norn Stones. He's like, yeah, dude, I I don't have them. Has she has she ever been named? Have we ever heard? She just says, Loki is queen of the Norns. I've come to reclaim my magic stones. She is Carnilla, Carnilla, queen of the Norns. But I'm not sure she's ever actually been named. She is not named here. She is just called the queen of the Norns. Uh, yeah, she may have been named in a previous issue, but I don't remember. Loki then is spying on the situation. He certainly seems to imply the Viet Cong are working for him. He's like, I've waited too long, planned my trap too well. At last, my trap is set. The timing is perfect. Everything proceeds exactly as I willed it to. He is acting as if he is controlling the Viet Cong, but presumably he has just he has just put Don Blake into the situation, knowing the Viet Cong will strike, and he is not actually controlling them. Yeah, that, that, that's the feeling that I get. So uh, the Viet Cong sees Don Blake and take him to their underground tunnels. And once again, as you said, this actually is something that later turned out to be actually true, that the, <laughs> the North Vietnamese had tunnels everywhere, which is one of the reasons why we couldn't do anything. Well, about. not the North Vietnamese. The Viet Cong had tunnels everywhere. The Vietnamese and the North, okay. the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong were very different things. Okay. Uh, I'll take your word for that. I don't, I, that's one. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
So, yeah, so the Viet Cong actually did have these sorts of uh, tunnels everywhere, and that's one of the reasons they were able to fight us so effectively. So Dr. Don Blake is brought to the communist commander. Really, really nice panels. Panel two on page 12 with the Viet Cong commander kicking a stool out from under Don Blake. And the, uh, the, the positions of both of their bodies is really just striking. The family that had sheltered him is brought in for punishment, and they suddenly recognize each other. This is the long-lost brother. He is the uh, communist dictator, or not dictator, but the, uh, you know, the the military leader, basically, of this area who has been uh, causing such uh, destruction on everybody. Don, meanwhile, he had, he had had his, tie, his hands tied behind his back by the VC, and he has a uh, his walking with his walking stick. So his walking stick was used as part of his thing. Uh, so then he falls down in just the right angle to where he stamps it on the ground and turns into Thor. Of course, nobody seems to put two and two together. <laughs> yes. Hey, where'd that guy go? And hey, here's Thor. We see that there's a huge magazine of ambient of uh, explosives that is uh, also in this underground bunker. Again, that will be important in a few minutes. The evil brother, the communist warlord brother, ends up accidentally or in rage or whatever, shooting his own mother and killing her. Mother and brother. Oh, right. Both both, both his mother and his brother. He then suddenly starts to realize what he has become and what he is doing. He chases after his sister. And actually, that uh, picture of her on page 14, does that not look like Steve Lee Aloha? Huh. I guess. A little bit. I mean, I know it couldn't be. Steve Lee Aloha wasn't, you know, he was probably still a kid at this point, but it just really jumps out at me as looking like that to me. Anyway, in the end, uh, Thor fights all of the uh, communist villains. He is able to rescue the sister. And then in the end, the corrupted brother fires his gun at the stockpile of explosives, killing himself and the entire, you know, Viet Cong uh, outfit and destroying the tunnels. Yes. So, um, yes, as you said, this seems like a throwback to uh, Hulk number two. Hulk number one. And then okay. even very similar bit at the end, where as Thor is flying away here, he says, Husak is dead, little Kim. But it is as I expected. He died a man, which is very similar to the final line of Hulk number one, where the gremlin realizes the errors of communism and blows himself up with his entire base. And there's a similar sort of ending line. So. Perhaps Marvel Comics have not been learning and growing this entire time, and we're still stuck in 1962 here in 1965. But it's fine. I like having, I like having the family drama. I think it's fun. I, you know, I, I, this doesn't seem like just the sort of generic. Oh well, every other issue, they're either going to fight an alien invasion or a bunch of communists because right. that's all there is in this world. It's like you know, Vietnam War is happening. You know, there's all this stuff going on. Uh, I, I don't really feel this. Uh, you know, I feel that this seems like a rational amount of that stuff here, rather than sort of the irrational type that I think we were getting earlier. Yes. Okay. So uh, shall we go on and do Tales of Asgard, or do you have some things to say about that? Let me see if I have any more notes. I guess chasing each other around with the Nornstones as a big MacGuffin reminds me of the great Avengers Earth Minus Heroes TV show, which is uh, the whole finale of the first season involves chasing after Nornstones, which I was happy to see that this is the origin of it. And actually, uh, I I did have a few visual notes here I had missed. Uh, I'll just go ahead and go through them quickly. At one point, you know, you were talking about how, uh, you know, could Thor just take a bullet to the head and be dead? You know, you've asked that question. Uh, At one point, there's a uh, panel here where he's where he says to himself, 
although my lifespan is endless under normal conditions, I can still be slain by weapons or other artificial means as he's uh, withstanding the uh, anti-aircraft fire. So that seems to, you know, seems to, to lend credence to, to the uh, thing that he could just be killed. Yeah. Um, and certainly he seems to go to great lengths to avoid getting hit by bullets in these issues, which is yes, why it doesn't yes. come up until a Black Panther comic in the 90s. that It's not actually good for him to be shot by bullets. There's another panel where uh, the caption says, surrounded on all sides by deadly ack-ack, Thor suddenly changes direction. So, you know, uh, just... I mean, obviously, it's clear what they're referring to there, but just uh, the use of just that term without uh, explanation is, uh, I find, interesting. Onomatopoeia. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so Tales of Asgard, Home of the Mighty Norse Gods, the sword in the scabbard, which sounds actually kind of suggestive, but, you know. Yes, it is very suggestive, and it it, it ends with, next issue, will, you will witness the spellbinding start of the quest for adventure fantasy at its greatest. Don't miss Thor 118, and for the love of Asgard, keep your oversword sheathed. <laughs> yes. I'm, going, <laughs> I'm like, wow, that is one of the dirtiest uh, sounding phrases we've heard in any Marvel comic until this point. Yes. Uh, yeah, well, that, that's not subtext at that point. That's text. <laughs> That is a single entendre. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, so we start off Tales of Asgard with a fantastic splash page of oh, uh, Asgardian warriors fighting each other. So essentially, Asgard has been at peace too long, and their warriors grow restless and start fighting each other instead. Odin comes in and tells them all to knock it off. Odin is wearing basically like a big witch's broom tuft sticking out of his hat. <laughs> It's, yes. It looks at first like that's going to be like a mohawk type thing, but he turns to the side and it's like, nope, that is round. It's <laughs> just a cylindrical thing coming up out of his head. I guess um, it is just amazing. Like we we talk about it all the time, but there is absolutely no rule saying that Jack Kirby has to draw a different helmet on Odin every single time he appears. This is just a rule that Jack Kirby has created for himself. Stan presumably has not ordered him to never use the same hat twice. And it is absolutely crazy. It is absolutely crazy that Kirby <laughs> has set this goal for himself and keeps topping himself. And he will draw. I mean, by the time he finally leaves Thor in 1970, how many hundreds of amazing helmets will he have created for Odin? It is amazing that he just sets this goal for himself and meets it. Yes, absolutely. So uh, then Thor and Loki are fighting because Thor has decided that it was Loki who has turned everybody against each other with his deceits. Odin uh, tells him to stop fighting, and Loki thinks to himself, Odin, with him here, I'll have to fight fair. I won't have a chance against the mighty Thor. Then at the end, we see Odin bring them over to the Oversword of Asgard. And he's trying to keep them from fighting because he has a problem and it involves the Oversword of Asgard. Uh, and apparently, supposedly, if this thing is ever unsheathed, the planets themselves would tremble with fear and it will lead to the end of the universe. Yes. I so guess this Ragnarok? Is... Yes, so this is actually from Norse mythology, I believe. They actually have the oversword in Norse mythology, this great Hawkins sword in Asgard that can never be unsheathed. I don't know. I assume it's from actual Norse mythology because many, many different Thor writers keep going back to this for many years. And uh, But if it's not, it should be because it's great. 
<laughs> so um, <clears throat> it turns out that the Oversword has a crack in it, and if it ha if it breaks, then that also, I guess, will cause the problem. <laughs> but Odin, of course, to show the cracks in it, has to partially unsheath the thing. It's like, dude, <laughs> like. Careful! <laughs> Seriously! They are then ordered by Odin to go out and find whoever it is whose evil is causing this thing to shatter. Yes. Uh, and so that's it. We will have more of this particular epic end quest next issue. They go ahead and say here at the beginning, beginning one of the greatest sagas of all time by Stanley and Jack Kirby. And this is not the only time this month, by the way, where Stanley and Jack Kirby are credited on the same line as if maybe, which is what eventually Stan will do. So at first, Stan will start giving plot and credit to Steve Dicko and only Steve Dicko for the final year of Steve Dicko's runs on these books. But he does not start giving any planning credit to Jack Kirby until shortly after Dicko leaves. He will finally change the credits of all of his books to say a great, and he'll have his name and the artist's name on the same line and say, you know, a Stanley Jack Kirby story or a Stanley John Romita story. And he will no longer say, I'm the writer there, the artist, because he is pulling back from doing the potting and he is sort of acknowledging like i can't really call myself the writer anymore and that is how the final five years or so of stanley's writing on all these books is going to go but here we have little glimpses of it and, and this is not the only time we see that this month where we see stanley and jack kirby and this is a huge turning point in terms of i think from this point on we're going to, instead of having the Tales of Asgard be these short little four-page stories, it's going to be massive epics. And I am all for that. This is the beginning of the first massive epic. I, I enjoyed the little four-page stories, but I think the best use of this feature is for big epics, uh, which are almost as epic as the epic taking up Doctor Strange. And uh, I am very happy to see the beginning of one. And this is just, despite the Glutta Inks, a gorgeous story uh the first page of the massive brawl is just fantastic all of the art in the whole issue is fantastic this is a great story yeah yeah and once again you know you i uh, usually if i see that thor is fighting communists i'm just like Ugh. but this one actually pulls it off uh you know reasonably well it, by tying it into the whole nornstone search and everything yep yeah i agree so now we're gonna move on to wait first we're gonna wrap up this episode Oh, that's right. I keep on forgetting because when Daredevil is here, then Strange Tales is not the last one of the first one. Yes. Okay. So, everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Marvel Reread Club. Uh, we have enjoyed this. This has been the first half of June 1965. We have had four pretty good issues for, you know, I would say a great issue of Spider-Man, a pretty good issue, well, a issue of Daredevil with certain appeal, a certain amount of appeal to it, um, a pretty good issue of Fantastic Four. A pretty good issue of Thor and a great Tales of Asgard. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, looking back in retrospect, uh, after we get, you know, into the Galactus and, and that sort of era, I sort of see this, like, right around mid-1965 as when the engine really starts cranking on, you know, prime Silver Age Marvel. And I really feel like we're heading into the good stuff right now. Uh, and uh, I... I have been getting that feeling in these uh, these issues that we've done. Yep. Okay. Okay. Well, fantastic. Well, All right, everybody. Thanks for coming out tonight. We will continue recording tonight and do the back half of 1965, which will be our next episode. We will see you then. Yes. Thank you for having us in your ear holes and stay safe out there. Okay. Bye.
Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.